From the nation's leading supply chain university program, we welcome you to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research. Here are your hosts, Steve Tracy and Irv Grossman. So Steve, we're going to be covering off today uh, the subject of vaccine distri- distribution, vaccine supply chain. It's a timely and moving subject. So uh, at this point in time, at the end of March, we're we're at a certain interesting point, and it'd be good to, for us to capture where we are at the moment and give a little history around it. And joining us today are uh, two experienced people on the subject, uh, both of them with uh, MITRE Corporation. First off, uh, Dr. Cynthia Hansen is a senior principal for biosecurity and equity in the federally funded research and development center operated by MITRE Corporation. She leads efforts to accelerate COVID-19 response and recovery, strengthen global health security, and expand relationships with agencies' missions aligned with biosecurity and equity objectives of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Dr. Hansen has over a decade of federal experience leading complex public health initiatives with senior officials of HHS and other federal agencies, as well as the White House and the National Security Council. She served as senior advisor to the Center of Excellence on Federal Affairs Resilience at the U.S. Department of State Foreign Services Institute and the HHS offices of Assistant Secretary of Health, Assistant Secretary of Preparedness and Response, and the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Dr. Hansen is a licensed clinical psychologist with over 20 years experience evaluating and treating people of all ages. She's a PhD in clinical psychology from the University of Arkansas and an AB in education and psychology for Brown University. Uh, welcome, Dr. Hansen. Thank you so much. And also joining us is a, is a friend of the family. Taylor Wilkerson is a, a principal health systems engineer with the MITRE Corporation. Taylor has over 20 years of experience in public and private sector supply chain improvements and engineering. His experience includes strategy, process design, systems architecture and requirements, risk management, sustainability, decision support, and innovation management. He has worked with several public sector clients, including the HHS, VA, DOD, CDC, DOS, USAID, and the USDA. Outside of MITRE, Taylor is the president of the Council of Supply Chain Management Professionals Roundtable for the Washington, D.C. area. He's also served in leadership roles in the Supply Chain Risk Leadership Council, as well as serving on the Board of Advisors here at the Penn State Center for Supply Chain Research. That's why we call him an alum. He's the MBA. He says an MBA with a concentration in supply chain information systems from University of Maryland and a bachelor's degree in mechanical engineering from Vanderbilt University. Always great to talk with you, Taylor. Thank you, Amirv. I'm, I'm glad to be here. Taylor and Cynthia, did you want to uh, just uh, just tell a little bit about MITRE, who MITRE is and what MITRE does? And maybe also, um, you know, we, we just got finished talking about the tragedy of the 550,000 lives and millions of lives we lost in the United States. But mm-hmm the work that MITRE led with the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition and the partners, the, I don't know, thousands of partners now, I remember when Taylor called me, it was tens, um, all the lives that were saved from all the work that, that you guys did. I think it's really important to maybe make a comment about that. Yeah, so so MITRE, uh, MITRE operates uh, what are called federally funded research and development centers which uh, essentially are, uh, means that we partner very closely with government um, and, and provide government uh, 
new technologies and, and strategic advice, strategic direction. MITRE has been doing this since uh, the 1960s, and we have uh, six FFRDCs that, that we operate, uh, each with uh, a different mission and scope. The, the one that Cynthia and I, I work mostly with is uh, an FFRDC that supports HHS and, and works on improving uh, healthcare delivery uh, across the country. You know, back in March of last year, uh, MITRE, along with MIT and the Mayo Clinic, realized that there was uh, a role for the private sector to help in the response to COVID-19 and that that role was, was currently not being filled. So uh, MITRE and, and Mayo and MIT got together to stand up the uh, COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition with the intent of, of bringing industry together to uh, address the, the COVID-19 response. O over time, that coalition grew to over a thousand members and working across topics from supply chain to looking at uh, clinical care and looking at social policies uh, and, and everything in between. We looked at testing, we looked at uh, telehealth and a, a number of different topics. And, and through that coalition, through the work we've, we've done, we were able to you know, help people get the, the PPE that they needed. We developed models to predict the demand for PPE as uh, infection rates increased and, and allows for some uh, resource allocation decisions based on that. We, you know, part of the coalition was uh, several large electronic health records vendors. And through some, some data sharing, we were able to do some analysis on how different treatments were, were playing out, uh, how effective they were. Essentially, you know, by, by looking through the, the data that was available on those uh, millions of health records, you know, all the way to we, we had a, a team that really did a, a lot of work on expanding the use of telehealth uh, in response to the, the um, COVID-19 uh, situation, allowing people to access health care, even those times where you couldn't go face to face with a doctor. So it was really a, a great coalition to be a part of. It uh, really did a uh, you know, we think a, a lot of good in terms of saving lives and, and providing a, the information needed to better respond to COVID-19. And uh, as always, we're really happy with uh, the, the work that CSCR uh, did in supporting that and, and Steve, the work you did in connecting us with uh, faculty uh, across Penn State who helped on a, in a number of different areas for that coalition. Well, you should all be very proud of the work that you uh, have done and continue to do. And we are very proud to be partners with MITRE and the COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition and the work that it has done and uh, the outcomes that that work has achieved. So um, thanks thanks for including us in that effort. Absolutely. As I said, it was uh, Penn State and CSCR was a, a great partner throughout that effort. Excellent. So I figured I, we could start the conversation with just describing what a typical vaccine supply chain looks like before it gets pushed under the stress that it has been. So can you give us kind of a brief view of what the architecture may look like in a vaccine supply chain? Yeah, sure. So, you know, one of the things that I think has been fun for me uh, as a supply chain person looking at what's happened over the past year is that we've seen so many different vaccine technologies uh, really come online to uh, serve the, the uh, COVID-19 response. And 
So, you know, when we talk about a, a typical vaccine supply chain, I think it's important to, to go in knowing that the, these are different platforms and, and different technologies. But there are uh, quite a few similarities when you look at it from sort of that 50,000 foot uh, view. So if you take a look at the messenger RNA or mRNA vaccine technology, which is what uh, Moderna and Pfizer are using, it starts off with a few key components, and, and they are uh, plasmid DNA, which is essentially small pieces of, of genetic material that uh, can be replicated. Uh, and then another key piece is called lipid nanoparticles, or LNP, which, as th the name applies there, are really, 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 really small balls of, of lipids that are used to surround the DNA material or RNA material in the vaccine to keep it stable until it's injected. So these components go into uh, you know, the plasma DNA, which is used to create the, the messenger RNA bulk drug uh, or bulk substance that goes into the vaccine. It's combined with the lipid nano nanoparticles, then goes through a process called fill finish, where all that is put into the vials and labeled and packaged to go out. And then uh, it's sent out to uh, the destination. And, and Cynthia certainly has a, a, a lot of expertise on what happens at the local level, but you know, at that sort of manufacturing production level, that's the basic process. I mean, it's obviously a lot more complicated than that when you get into the details, but it's for the, the basic structure. So the, the system isn't necessarily, it wasn't designed to handle the volume of, uh, you take just in the U.S., 330 million people and you multiply it times two doses. That's a, that's a lot of volume. So how did, how do we scale up to handle that? What, what's been done to make, enable this uh, capability to, to manage through the process? So, so I think that's a, a great question. I mean, you know, early on, somebody described this in a meeting I was in as the largest product launch in human history. Um, and, and I think, you know, that, that's probably the most apt description. You know, you think about this as uh, roughly a year ago, these vaccines were just being developed and with a goal of within a, a year or two years, having two doses out to 7 billion people across the world. So, you know, the, the scale up has been, it, it's been uh, complex, you know, as, as you can imagine, the companies involved, like any other company, aren't hanging around with uh, a lot of excess capacity. So, the, that capacity had to be um, created, it had to be reserved. And when we look at the, the steps involved, some of these components really have really started off with really limited capacity. So like the lipid nanoparticles that I mentioned, a lot of the production that had been happening in, for that particular component was almost happening at a, a laboratory level. So those, those uh, suppliers, those manufacturers had to really ramp up significantly to, to meet this challenge. But a lot of that was speculative, right? I mean, they're, they're, they're ramping up and we're not certain whether it's going to work or not. So how do you speculate all that capacity in advance of FDA approval? Yeah, so, so that's a great set, uh, great question as well. And, and I think that was one of the one of the things that you could look at as a, a key success factor with Operation Warp Speed and, and the work that they did. I mean, Operation Warp Speed, you know, really was essentially uh, a way to, at a central location organizationally, bring together the 
the uh, different government players that were involved in vaccine production. So FDA, CDC, the uh, F, the sorry HHS Assistant Secretary for Preparedness and Response, FEMA, the Department of Defense, to work with industry and bring industry together with that to talk about what capacity was needed, how to arrange that capacity, um, and and essentially, you know, to your point, or where to take the bets on that capacity. So there, there was a decision early on that uh, the mRNA vaccines or, or that platform had shown some successes against other coronaviruses, so SARS and MERS. Um, so there was a, a decision made that that was going to be one of the uh, platforms that um, we were going to invest in. And because of that, that also allowed us to look at things like the, the nanoparticles and, and other components that would be part of that. Right now, to point, I, I just was as you're mentioning warp speed. I, I got a, um, I got appreciation for uh, uh, the COO uh, of, of warp speed, a, a gentleman named Gus Perna. Um, he was speaking at a press conference, and, and in this speech, he was uh, talking about the original mistakes as allocations occurred, missing forecasts, and the like. And all I could think at the back of my head is that is every supply chain leader that I've <laughs> that that's, that that's ever had the job. And uh, in in industry or wherever have you, and uh, so there were there were some obviously small mistakes made at launch, but um, obviously we got slow to start through distribution. But they, but even to maintain in distribution, there's there's this cold chain that didn't exist either of the size and scale as what was needed. I mean the the Moderna and, and the Pfizer va- uh, vaccines, I think both of them are, are kept at very cold temperatures. And can only be out for short periods of time before they're actually, um, they're actually, you know, people are actually inoculated. So even that that had to be scaled up also, and even even thinking about how how the how the allocations were occur, occurring. So right now where we are is, I mean, so so to get to that, that that was another step where somebody had to make some commitments early on too, right? Right, and and I think you know one of the, I'd say maybe a, a benefits of the the pharmaceutical production timeline is that there is this piece in the middle where you have to conduct these clinical trials, et cetera, which gave Operation Warp Speed and industry some some time and some uh, lead time to put these things into place. Uh, and, and you're right, the, the cold chain was a significant concern, and uh, it was a recognized concern as well. Uh, so you, you saw some investments being made by by Pfizer, by uh, UPS and FedEx and, and others to put this cold chain into place. And it, it still is a concern because a, a lot of the the initial rollout of uh, the Pfizer vaccine, especially because that's the one that had to be uh, stored at uh, minus 80 degrees Celsius, you know, a lot of that was rolling out to uh, large hospitals, et cetera, where you had some existing infrastructure to store things at that temperature. Uh, as as we start rolling out to more and more areas of the community, there's not that existing infrastructure. The good news is Pfizer has gone back and done testing and, and found that the vaccine is stable at more uh, normal freezer temperatures. So it's alleviated some of that, but that, that certainly was one of the, the concerns going in. And, and Cynthia, I don't know if you, you can talk a little bit about some of the, the infrastructure that's in place you know, for the 
the distribution of, of vaccines in general. So we think about like the flu vaccines and the pediatric vaccines. Right. So everything, it, just like you said, the scale of this endeavor was was bigger than the systems in place for normal vaccine distribution were set up for. It's, it's just everything was bigger. That meant that everything kind of that was constructed to facilitate flu vaccines or childhood immunizations was scaled too small to be able to accommodate the demand and the uh, supply, both sides. So with, with that in mind, I think one of the big challenges, one of the challenges that were very successfully uh, worked were the handoff between the manufacturing of the vaccine and the packaging to keep it, get it safely to the points of distribution. That they, they partnered up in a way that facilitated that handoff. The handoff next was going to be, needed to be from the points of distribution to the actual administration sites. And I, I will say that those handoffs by the thousands were not mapped as clearly as the upstream parts of the handoffs. So, so it would have been a much smoother transition because those handoffs were not normal distribution or administration sites. They're, they're, they had to be scaled up. Sure. Yeah, we have a combination of Walgreens and CVSs and Walmarts and, and, and public agencies and hospitals. I mean, I think a multi-channel distribution, this is just an extreme version of this. I mean, who makes a decision of who's going where? Yeah. yeah. Giant, Safeway, Dodger it, Stadium, <laughs> you name it. It's wild. For us, it was Mercedes-Benz Stadium. Like, how do you, how are those decisions made of points of distribution? Were they made by the state agencies and, and were communicated back? And was there a central point of command that made, made allocation decisions? So that was a little um, confusing in the beginning, and it's gotten sorted out. It's one of those processes where it's improved in the doing of it. The, the data is pretty clear that at the beginning, it was maybe half a million vaccines per day, and now we're over 3 million a day. Uh, not every day, but enough days to be confident that we can expand that much. So it is an example of a, of a lot of heroics, to be honest, from all parts of the administration system to get these vaccines out the door. But it's not it's because the system learned by doing, not because it was created, designed for um, streamlined, a streamlined process, particularly with the fluctuating supplies, which are an upstream issue that people expected and, and then had to manage on, on the downstream side. Right. So so where where are we at the moment? I mean, do we feel like we're at a kind of mature constancy as it relates to the supply chain being able to handle this volume? Are we still going to see um, bumps and lumps as we move uh, forward over the next couple of months? It's, I just think it's domestically, not internationally in this case. And I think that's that's fairly accurate. You know, as, as Cynthia mentioned, there were there were certainly a lot of, we'll say, bumps in the road when the, the vaccines start, started rolling out, but uh, a lot of those have been resolved to to a large extent. You know, that being said, you know, as, as we mentioned, this is a huge undertaking. You know, we're, we're trying to get two doses of vaccine into 350 million yeah. people um, in, in a matter of uh, a year or hopefully less. 
so you know, I, I think we, we can expect to see some some further bumps in the road. But you know, the the good news is right now, you know, we've we've vaccinated about fully vaccinated about 50 million people uh, in the U.S. or it's over 15 percent of the population. And um, right, we we've just recently had the Johnson and Johnson vaccine approved. Uh, it looks like we're close to approval within the, the next uh, few months for three other vaccines, AstraZeneca, the Novavax, and, and the CureVac. So there's there's additional capacity that is coming online. So, so I think, you know, f- from that standpoint, you know, again, a, a lot of good capacity coming online, a lot of the, the kinks worked out of the system, but three new vaccines, three new uh, handling procedures, uh, they're, they're different vaccine technologies. So there, there's always the, the chance for some bumps, but I think we've we've learned a lot on how to handle those. So now are we running into a situation now where we're running towards excess capacity as far as excess excess volume that we have? It sounds with all these new vaccines coming online. Is, is this when uh, we start looking globally for distribution and uh, participating, you know, participating uh, and distributing it to the rest of the world? Where, I mean, are we are we to that point yet? So, so I don't think we're quite there yet. You know, as I said, we've we've vaccinated about 50 million uh, people in the U.S. so far. That's out of 350 million. So, still a ways to go. the The good news on when you talk about global distribution is that you know the U.S. is not the only nation producing vaccines. The, the there is production happening uh, around the world, and and we we see uh, you know Europe has a significant amount of production, but also India, which is the the largest vaccine producer in the world uh, in general is also ramping up their capacity. Uh, they're, they're doing a lot of production for the AstraZeneca vaccine, for example. Really what we're seeing is uh, the capacity coming online, but I think it's still going to be a while before we can even start talking about excess capacity. We, we have a lot of people to get shots to before we get to that. And, and if I could jump in just to, to talk about the bumps in the road that may come our way, Right now, some of the vaccine administration sites are managing the different flows simultaneously of people who are returning for a second shot for Moderna. They get Moderna for Pfizer. They get Pfizer. And then first shots for Johnson & Johnson. And the supply at the site matched up with the person who needs which vaccine is also a, a bump that people are learning from today in real time, hour by hour. How are we going to do this? Right. I got the impression that to the individual, they're kind of left to the responsibility. Like I have my first Moderna shot to find my second. I have to go find it and I have to go ask around. I, that's kind of, I've been, I've, I was thinking I was left to my own devices. I didn't know I was, I didn't know there was uh, somebody at the at an agency level or a location level that was that was working across three different supplies and trying to balance the three. I always thought there was level of exclusivity. So that's a great great point. So this one of the things about this administration process is that county by county it differs, and so exactly your experience is replicated by the hundreds of thousands. But the experience that I had when I went for shot one and I could go back, I was told when to come back for shot two is a different experience. And so that if you get a room full of people to begin talking about their experience, then you'll find that you have at least 
um, an equal number of experiences to the people in the room. But if they talk about their parents or their spouses <laughs> or their college kids, <laughs> then, then you're getting it's, it's going to be replicated like at, at levels of complexity that uh, I think I think it's it's really nice to have the people on this uh, listening to this podcast think through how would you look at this from the end user's perspective? And is there anything upstream as you design the supply chain that could um, streamline or facilitate or mitigate some of these challenges? That leads to our episode two. We just discussed design thinking. So that's a good segue. Thank you. <laughs> so, so, so what's been the biggest learning so far that is going to make the, um, I won't say the next one. Hopefully we don't have this situation again, but it, you know, like you said, we've learned something of product launches in, in, in this sector, you know, do we, do we make life easier for the next time we may go through something of similar scale requirements? So, so I think there's uh, certainly a, a lot of lessons to be learned. And, and uh, as you point out, or they're, they're not necessarily exclusive to um, a vaccine launch. I think there's uh, a lot of just general uh, lessons to be learned. Um, you know, one for me is, you know, I mentioned the, the way Operation Warp Speed brought together this sort of central place where government and all the different industry players could coordinate their actions and also maybe more importantly, start off with an agreed vision of what we're trying to achieve, what the goals are, you know, how the, the money's going to flow, all those things that allowed everybody to go and do their piece of the job while aiming for uh, the same target. And I think that was a, a pretty critical success factor, along with some really proactive work to, to get the production capacity reserved. Uh, there, there were a lot of early actions with contract manufacturers uh, to, to get them to uh, set aside capacity for these vaccines, or in some cases, even add capacity in anticipation of these vaccines. I think one of the other things that, you know, maybe, wasn't as uh, smooth is the need for visibility. I, I, Irv, you touched on this a little earlier, but there were uh, a lot of different industry players involved. There was the federal government involved. There, as Cynthia mentioned, 56 different state and territories and, and tribal nations involved, and as well as counties. And there wasn't uh, really good visibility, and, and still to an extent, not as much visibility as you'd like to have. But I think every supply chain uh, leader is going to say you never have the visibility uh, you want, but getting that visibility um, is really important. And I think we, we've seen that early on, and, you know, the, the number of times I've referenced the beer game over the past <laughs> several months has been uh, amazing in reference to that. You start to calling it the vaccine game now, right? Almost, almost. Just <laughs> but, and, and I think the, the last one that we, we touched on was, uh, really a lot of focus on producing the vaccine uh, early on and, and not as much focus on how do we actually get this to the patients. So, you know, getting that, that last mile, how are you going to manage that last mile, getting that into the, the discussion early on is really important. And, uh, you know, again, I, this isn't exclusive to this vaccine rollout. I mean, you could have gone back to uh, last fall and and taking the word vaccine out and putting you know PlayStation 5 in and seeing the same issues rolling out right <laughs> but it, it just right. echoes that that importance of looking at the end-to-end -end supply chain and thinking through 
not just how do I produce the product, but how do I get the product in the customer's hand or in the case of the vaccine, the patient's arm? I have a, I, when you talk, it reminds me of that, uh, that like pinball game. What is it called? Pachinko where you shoot the ball at the top and you watch it bounce around and come down at the bottom. No, no one, no one ever thinks about, uh, the, 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 how the ball gets to the bottom. Uh, that's kind of what you're talking about is that, that, that messy process that, uh, but we got it there and, uh, it went there. It, you know, for the most part, it's gone there with a level of, of, um, transparency. I, you know, I, I applaud the efforts of, of everybody to get us to this point. It's been, you know, for somebody who's a supply chain practitioner, I'm sure, and those people listening are, you know, kind of fascinated with this of how, how it actually came to be. Now we have to figure out, you know, we just got uh, the tanker out of the Suez Canal. So I think everything, everything overall in supply chain should be improving from here. That's all. That's my best guess. And so, Irv, if I could talk about one thing, the lesson I learned is what is the beer game? Because <laughs> I didn't know it before this. But now that I understand the beer game, we saw that playing out in real time, of course, during during this uh, rollout, and and one of the things that was was um, two two lessons from that. One is the communications. If the supply is not going to be as anticipated, having communication about that was really important. And so there were a lot of news articles about can, uh, sudden cancellations of clinics and and all of those or oversupply because that communication uh, thread was not as well oiled as the, the actual stuff thread. And then the, the second piece is, um, is just making sure that, that the, the messaging was trustworthy. And so it, everything is gonna change. There's gonna be a time to ramp up. There's gonna be a time to ramp down. There's gonna be a time when there's high demand, low demand. There may be you know, other future scenarios that that the only thing we can predict is that it will change. So within that that changing environment, that agile environment that everyone on this call practices within, how do you build in trust into that? How do you build in communication? So you could say, oh, it's going to change, but I'll know about it. Even if it's an hour before, I'll still, we have some communications in place, some visibility in play so that we can respond agilely and not be caught flat-footed. Very good. Yeah. I, I just think about that term, bad news doesn't get better with time. And uh, sometimes we don't like to communicate that quickly either. So yeah, yeah, I'm going to take that one. That's a really good lesson from that. <laughs> that and the beer game, you learned two things. Yeah, today, right? Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So Steve, do you have any, uh, any, any comments or questions? I know you've been dealing with a lot of this at the university side on being on the task force. And what have you seen as it relates to vaccine distribution? Well, um, first, I want to thank uh, Cynthia and Taylor again for joining us today on the podcast. It's always a pleasure. And Taylor, it's always good to talk to you. I've known Taylor for many years. Appreciated it. You know, Taylor was our first board chair at CSCR. When we founded the board, he took the initiative to write our uh, our board charter. Um, and he's always been a good friend. And he was the first person to call me uh, back in, I want to say it was March of 2020 a year ago to ask uh, Penn State to join the uh, COVID-19 Healthcare Coalition uh, with uh, MITRE and the Mayo Clinic. So uh, Taylor, always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, Steve. Um, I think some of the 
I, I, I do have a question for, for Cynthia and Taylor that I, you know, um, what I often think about is after the dust settles, right? So let's jump forward to, um, and Taylor, you were talking very thoughtfully about the rollout and all the people that we need to vaccinate, just not just in the United States, but globally. But let's jump forward, say, I don't know, six months from now. Optimistically, the vaccines are successful against the virus and the variants. Uh, life returns to, I'll call it uh, an, an overused term, but a new normal. What are companies and government agencies going to do then? Like, are they, uh, Cindy, I think you said something about lessons learned earlier. What, what are companies and, and government agencies going to go do, um, in your opinion? You know, or maybe more importantly, what do you think they should do? What, what lessons should they take away from this and actually go do things differently? starting uh, as soon as the end of 2021. So so I can take a shot at that. And, and that is, I, I think one of the key things that we need to do and we need to look at is um, how do we build this system so it can respond faster next time? And, and it's a combination of companies internally reviewing what they do for risk management and um, how they uh, structure themselves to respond to the the event that they can't predict, um, which COVID-19 is certainly one of those. Uh, on a more national scale, I think it's building the, the relationships that were needed this time and, and building on those so that they're warm relationships the next time. You know, we talked a lot about the decisions that were made to ramp up production and uh, the partnerships that were made between the, the vaccine producers and contract manufacturers, and, and even between you know companies that wouldn't normally partner on a product launch. You have uh, Merck producing J&J's vaccine, for example. You know, what can we do to, to have those relationships warm so it's not uh, starting from scratch the next time so we can, can ramp up those partnerships uh, to, to produce what's needed? Yeah, I agree, Taylor. I think that that the capacity, the rapid capacity is going to be absolutely essential. I think the other thing that I've seen already is a focus on building systems that can provide the visibility and communications needed for these handoffs. Our systems are, are in public health are, are not made for this. And so that is a, an important investment if if we're going to uh, be responding to these kinds of outbreaks, pandemics, epidemics in the future. I would say that on the other side of that, finding ways to novel ways to find an, an emerging infectious disease at a regional level and contain it so that it doesn't spread to epidemic or pandemic proportions is also going to be um, a, a very upstream intervention uh, of value. Finally, I, I will just say the third thing is I, I know that almost everybody who's involved in this is it has their own list of lessons learned. So the entire supply chain, as it were, has a list of lessons learned, some of which have been applied and some of which they want to, to incorporate in their business models in the future. So I hope that there's some ability for people, some platform for people to share that information and to build on what others in the system have learned as well. And I think one other on, on top of that is, you know, we, we had a, a pretty heavy focus over the past year on 
the the vaccine production and and, and creating vaccines. Mm-hmm. I, I think there needs to be a, a better balance on the the vaccines versus therapeutics. You know, they're, they're both essential for saving lives. Vaccines for preventing people from getting sick, and the therapeutics for our, for treating the people who are sick. And I think there's a you know a lot of therapeutics that are now going through the the clinical trials and, and really showing some promise against uh, COVID-19. Um, you know, what are the ways we can do a better job of, of balancing those so that uh, we're bringing the therapeutics online sooner and in, in parallel with getting the vaccine online as quickly as possible? Yeah, that's a great point, Taylor. The, uh, the whole world of therapeutics as it relates to COVID-19 has been essentially silent for the last year, except for a few, you know, non-starters and you know, um, dead ends, I guess, with some things. Um, I, one last question for you, Cynthia, since it's really your wheelhouse. What do you think should be the advice to our government agencies, whether they're at the federal, state, or local level in terms of policy discussions? Um, I, I think based on what you've both said, you know, the response and success of the response has been contingent upon both government action and private sector action and the collaboration of, but the money and, and at the end of the day, the real leadership came from, you know, from the federal and state governments. What, what do you think the, the policy advice would be is that you would give going forward for them to think about in, in changing the way things are planned for and responded to in the future? So I, I'm going to go back to the idea of the lessons learned. I think that the importance of industry partnerships and handoffs is going to be one of the key lessons learned from all this, as well as the successes in the rapid development and manufacture, manufacturing of a safe and effective vaccine. It's, it's incredible. So um, going back to the drawing board, I hope and I expect that our government will pull together the best and brightest and do a review of all of these leverage points, all of these policy points of intervention and begin um, developing a framework that incorporates all of those lessons learned. And um, there are already great uh, reports online from some of the commissions who have been stood up to provide feedback to the government. And I, I can I only said as a engaged participant in watching when they came up with ideas that I didn't even know about and getting excited when some of our ideas are replicated in other venues. Interesting. Oh, and, and I should, I guess I should just say, you know, Katrina, I'm, I'm just gonna go back way back in time to Katrina, which is 15 years ago, that, that, um, that reorganized the response infrastructure for HHS and 9-11 reorganized the response infra- infrastructure for Homeland Security. We have, you know, over 500,000 deaths in the United States to date. And I can't even contemplate yet what implications that will have for our government. Yeah, your comments remind me of the uh, often used quotes, don't let a good crisis go to waste. And those who fail to learn from history are destined to repeat it. So your comments are well taken. I want to thank uh, Cynthia and Taylor both again for joining us here, Irv and myself at the Center for Supply Chain Research uh, on our podcast, and we welcome you back in the future. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you very much, Steve, and it was absolutely a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Penn State Supply Chain Podcast, brought to you by the Center for Supply Chain Research at Penn State. 
For information about our sponsorship opportunities, research needs, and professional development offerings, please visit smeal.psu.edu forward slash CSCR.